We are in our second week of our series uh, called Engage. Anyone else here? Uh, Star Trek Next Generation? No, just me? Oh, yeah, there we go. All right. Um, we're asking the question, uh, how do we engage with non-believers? And we're looking at that uh, through John 4. And the question or the, or the, the goal of this is how will we be more focused and effective in offering people around us the single greatest gift, which is the introduction to the God who created them, who loves them and who will give them meaning. And so, we're continuing in John 4, the story known as the woman at the well, and we'll be looking at verses um, 16 to 24 today, asking ourselves the question, how did Jesus engage this woman, and what can we learn and apply to our lives in regard to evangelism. Now, evangelism comes from a Greek word, which at its root uh, is the word that we get for gospel or good news. And so, when I talk about evangelism today, I just mean, how can we better share the good news of and about Jesus to others? Before we get started, um, let's agree from the start on a couple of things. The first one, it is God that changes lives. In the work It is the work of the Spirit that softens the heart and convicts. It is God who does the saving. The second thing is uh, that that being said, as followers of Christ, we're to desire obedience in all things, and that includes sharing the gospel and discipleship. We are called to be equipped and expected to share the ultimate thing in our lives, the greatest gift, a relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer. So, the question then becomes, how do we do that? Uh, one more, th- another thing to agree on is that uh, we are looking at one encounter here, one encounter of Jesus with a Samaritan woman. And Jesus uses different approaches to revealing who He is to different people in Scripture. And there are many other styles of evangelism seen in Scripture as well. And so, if the bar of evangelism is to do it as well as Jesus right? We'll never feel skilled enough or wise enough or loving enough, and we might just give up before we even get started. But remember, even with Jesus, there were some who walked away from Him like the the rich young ruler. Another thing we have to agree on is that um, there's much that we can learn from this personal encounter that we can use and apply to our relationship and how we reach the world for Christ, Uh, speaking about this this passage in John. And finally, that you are uniquely made and have experienced God in a way that God will use you to impact others for the kingdom, if you're willing. And this is His design. This is the way He wants to use you. Okay, I'm going to invite up uh, one of our young adults, Jessica Nipp, to, to come read the passage today with us. Let's stand up as we read God's Word, and actually we'll be… Um, We're going to overlap a little bit from last week, so we'll start in verse 10. So, it's page uh, 889 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you, right? We want you to have God's Word to study it, to apply it to your life. Go ahead, Jesus. John 4, 10 to 24. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you give that 
Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as, he, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Thank you. So the first thing we want to look at in this passage is that <clears throat> Jesus was an everyday evangelist. And so picking up where Pastor Joe left off last week, he made the observation that Jesus responded to his destiny every day. And so tired and thirsty, Jesus finds himself by a well and strikes up a conversation with a woman there. I'll be honest, when I'm thirsty or especially hungry, right, I'm not thinking, um, hey, I wonder where this person is spiritually, or I wonder how I can encourage them to know God. But Jesus isn't off the clock. He's about his Father's business, always. Joe mentioned that evangelism isn't a witnessing program. It's about living the Christian life. And so who here has been part of a mission, a mission trip? Anyone? Good. And we know that when we're on these trips, um, serving, sharing Christ through our words and our actions, that we seem to be attuned to people's spiritual needs. We listen. We're sensitive to what God is doing in the lives of those around us. But what happens when we come home? Oftentimes, we take off that missions hat and go about our lives. And so, I want to encourage us to be more intentional and relational with the non-believers who are around us every day. John explains that there were no crowds, and the disciples had gone into town to get food. So, Jesus sat down at the well, and He started playing Candy Crush on His iPhone, right? No. He didn't bury his head in the Samaritan daily news scroll, right? He engaged. Can we all at least agree that if there are people around, we need to put down the phone, right? We need to interact with others. And so the question is, are you ready to move this idea of evangelism from once a week or once a year or maybe never into engaging with others as part of the daily Christian life? And notice I didn't say leading someone to the Lord every day, right? I'm just talking about a change of mind to actively pursue others and engage. Anyone ever had a, a pebble in your shoe, right? You can 
put up with it for a while, you walk around with it, but you know it's there, and eventually you have to stop and deal with it. Are you ready to say or do the small things that will cause people to stop and to think? A friend of mine, uh, I love him, and he, uh, he's great at, at interacting with people in, the daily, uh, uh, in his daily life, and he calls it checking the doors. And so, uh, I'll say, Chuck, what have you been doing? Checking doors, checking doors. And so, just, just offering up information that allows deeper conversation. And so, for instance, we, uh, we often come to work on Monday and someone will ask us, well, how was your weekend? We tell them all about the movies we saw or the concert we went to or um, how your kids did in their sports event. And then we get to Sunday morning. We just kind of skip over that part, right? It's, it's checking the doors, is, is mentioning, hey, you know, actually in church, we, we, we talked about this, or, or we, um, the preacher taught on this, or in my Bible study, we're, we're discussing this. We had this great conversation about that. Just see where people are at, how they respond, right? Some people will say, but I've only been a Christian for how many years? We'll see next week that the woman at the well, and tons of other examples in Scripture, um, when they come to Christ, they then go immediately and share their faith. They can't contain it. In fact, the longer a person attends church, the fewer evangelistic discussions they engage with with their family and friends. Do you notice that to be true? We have to be intentional about meeting unbelievers and inviting them into our homes, into our families, into our circle of friends, into our church, into our lives. And pastors struggle with this, right? Think about it. You go to work, you're surrounded by Christians, you serve Christians, you're just, you're surrounded by Christians, so you have to be intentional about it. And so I have friends who are pastors who have joined the Sierra Club because they love being outdoors, and, and it's a way to interact with people outside of the church. Uh, they join the Surfrider Foundation, they join the Adult Sports League, and, and not the one that's, you know, the church league, right? What are some next steps that you can take to deliberately interact with those who are far from God? Is it through a hobby? Is it opening up your house um, for social interactions in your neighborhood? Be creative and have fun. There's tons of ways beyond just asking someone to church, and they may be more effective. I realize that evangelism can sometimes be defeating, right? We get a lot of no's. We get a lot of no thank yous. But we can't let rejection push us into hiding. I think this is why Jesus uses uh, the parable of the sower, right, in Matthew 13. We are called to sow seeds. We're called to share the good news. And there are lots of reasons that he gives why these seeds won't make it to maturity. I think that apologetics and pre-evangelism and some of the things that we're going to talk about today um, help to till that soil a little bit, maybe get some of the weeds out of the way, make that soil fertile. But engaging others... Um, these type of things. But ultimately, it's God. It's God who grows the plants, right? If we were blessed enough to be part of seeing someone devote themselves to Christ, um, then we get to be part of that harvest. Jesus was authentic. And many of us know how to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? We could answer that question, but we don't know how to start a conversation about spiritual matters. Jesus is the master at reaching people, and the Gospels record how He does that. To the aging Nicodemus, Jesus talks about being born again. To the blind man, Jesus identifies Himself 
as the light of the world. To those grieving the death of a loved one, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And to fishermen, Jesus invites them to become fishers of men. And he offers himself in this natural, connected, real way. Sometimes we try and use these same examples, but torn out of the context, they, they come off as forced, right? Uh, sometimes we think that we're supposed to say stuff like when we're watching the game, and there's a substitution in the game, finally, a substitution. Uh, did you know that Jesus um, can be your substitute? Come on, ref, that's not a penalty. And speaking of penalties, did you know that Jesus paid the penalty for your sins? See, it doesn't work. We need to be able to communicate in a way that is real, that is natural to our group, whatever that group is. So think about it. How would you relate Christ to your friends? What about your friends that surf? How would you relate Christ? What about your friends that golf? What about musicians, professionals? That's what Jesus would do. And that's exactly what we see here, right? To the woman at the well, he brings up water. I think that's interesting that Jesus says, give me a drink. Why isn't he a gentleman? Why doesn't he say, hey, can I offer you, can I help you draw, right? I think it's because he knew that some people need to be needed. We're often reluctant to say, do you have the time? Or men especially, you know, I'm lost. Can I I get some directions, right? Or I'm new in town. Do you know where this is? Can I get a hand with? right? We'll throw our backs out or we'll exhaust every possible resource before we say, hey, can I get some help over here? And we don't want to say, can you help me understand this? It's a pride issue. And Jesus was willing to be beholden to this woman. And Jews would never want to be indebted to a Samaritan. I think that sometimes we miss this opportunity. Serving is great and we should absolutely serve others. But there's an opportunity to let others be needed and to serve themselves. This is how we create relationships, this back and forth. Sometimes as Christians, we can come off as, hey, we're going to heaven, got it all figured out, we're great. And so the expectation can be that others have to be great first or have it all figured out if they want to be part of what you have. So are you ready? to be real, to be transparent, to be authentic with others. Yes, we have the truth of God's Word. Amen. And we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, but we're also sinners justified and adopted by God. We have nothing to boast in but Christ and the power of the cross. There's certainly much we can learn from others, at the very least, who they are and what their story is. We're not used car salesmen trying to make a sale. We're not putting on a show. We are the products of good news invading and conquering the bad. It makes sense then that God will use us in our authenticity, that we will be used by God in the way that we are. You might be direct like Peter or intellectual like Paul. You might be interpersonal like Jesus is being here. Are you an inviter? Do you create environments for believers and non-believers to come together? Do you throw parties? Does serving others allow you to share the love and show the love of Christ? However God has made you and gifted you to be, be that. Jesus loved the outcast. Pastor Joe spoke about this mutual contempt between the Jews and the Samaritans. 
uh, last week. He mentioned that Jews would often go out of their way. They would cross over the Jordan twice rather than going through Samaria. And Samar- uh, Samaritan was a curse word for the Jews. Because J- Samaritans were considered unclean, Jews were forbidden to eat or drink with Samaritans. And so, a Jew who was reading John's account of Jesus drinking with the Samaritan woman would be appalled. But Jesus is unconventional. Are we? Verses 10 to 14, Jesus brings up this idea of living water. And the Old Testament describes God as the provider and the source of this living water. It's a symbol of blessing and salvation, and it's synonymous with the kingdom of God. Isaiah 55 invites us that those who are thirsty to come to the waters and drink, that we thirst for spiritual things that money can't buy. And so Jesus is offering this spiritual water to this woman for free. Verse 10 says that if she knew, if she just understood who he was and what he was offering, all she had to do was ask, and she would be given eternal life. It's this free gift of grace. He asks her for a drink, but he's offering so much more. So are you ready to love beyond just your friends and your family? Are you really ready for a radical change of heart? And so who are the Samaritans in your life? Who are, who are they? And you might be thinking, well, I don't, I don't hate anyone. But ask yourself, who do you avoid? Whose calls do you let go vo- to voicemail? Have you changed the place you frequent just so that you won't bump into someone, maybe accidentally? That girl, that guy that you don't see eye to eye with, your neighbor, your boss, the parent on your kid's sports team, who's that person in your life? And what would happen, how would they react if you reached out to them in love? What kind of impact would they have for the kingdom of God through their testimony of a changed life? How powerful would that be? At family occasions, I often hang out uh, on the side yard of my aunt's house, and it's far away from the food and where everyone's hanging out and talking and the pool, and it's where they keep the trash and the recycling bins, right? Why do I hang out there? That's the smoking section. I don't smoke, but those people in my life, my family who are far from God, they do, and that's where they hang out. And that's where the real conversation is. It can be crude and smoky, but it's real. And because I make that walk, which is not very far at all, they know that I love them. There's no other reason I'd be hanging out on the side yard. When we're ready to love in that way that Jesus loves, it's going to be radical. Are we ready for what comes next? What if a homosexual couple came to church? How would we love and serve the homeless here? What about ex-convicts, those struggling with addiction? These are the potential realities of loving the outcast. And this is who Jesus loves. This is who Jesus reaches out to. Not only a Samaritan, but an outcast of the Samaritans, the lowest of the low. She's been exposed as an adulterer. She's living with a man that she's not married to, and she's been divorced multiple times. She's an out, the outcast of the outcasts. She goes out to get her water in the hottest part of the day just to avoid, just to, rather than face the other women. But Jesus is a friend to sinners. In a very real sense, we are all outcasts. And those of us who have been adopted by God should have no pride or sense of superiority. 
we see next that Jesus exposes sin and spiritual needs. Yes, Jesus is a friend of sinner, but because Jesus loves, he doesn't want them to remain in sin. He appeals to her conscience to get serious about sin. In verse 15, we see that she likes this idea of not being thirsty, but only because it means she won't have to draw water, only because it means she wouldn't have to come in the heat of the day to avoid the other women. She wouldn't have to hear their mocking, see the glares, feel the condemnation. But she was missing the point. This talk of a free gift of God, of blessing and salvation, of eternal life, that wasn't the good news for her. She wanted a way to hide her shame and guilt from the others. And Jesus wanted to expose it. Why? Because Jesus wanted to free her from guilt and sin. And we know that conversion requires conviction. We can try and hide sin by staying in the dark, or we can follow Jesus who says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the life, a life. Jesus exposes her sin of adultery, not to point and mock at her, but to allow healing through forgiveness. So are you ready to call sin, sin? Are we ready to be uncomfortable? Are we ready to be sensitive to the spiritual needs of others? And this is tough. This is not the thing that we want to do. It's not fun. It requires a change in our comfort level, especially if we don't want to, we don't want to be seen as the bad guy, right? The heavy, the downer. And Jesus revealed our sin, but He didn't revel in it. In the same way that we are not to endorse or excuse or approve of sin, but build relationships of trust that allow us to expose sin out of love. It's through this best story, this gospel, and the story of our lives that we declare that God finds us worthy of His love despite our broken lives. We sang that song, Relentless, earlier. God is relentless for those who are His despite our brokenness. The good news of salvation is the remedy to brokenness. So avoiding these conversations, these conversations of confession of sin and repentance, is taking the easy way out. Ignoring the need for Christ and forgiveness in our relationships, it's not loving. Jesus asks good questions, and He listens. Jesus inquires about the woman's situation and listens as she tells her story. We're going to see next week in verse 29 that um, the conversation was more extensive than even J uh, John recorded, right? We know that Jesus reveals to her all that she had done. In order to do that, there had to be connection and interaction, this conversation. If all we're doing is speaking at people, they oftentimes shut down. You can see it, right? The shield goes up, right? The eyes glaze over. They just hear seagulls, right? They're not there for a lecture. Nobody wants that, but people want the back and forth of relationship. I think that oftentimes we shy away from engaging with others, especially others that we know have different beliefs than us, is because we're afraid. We're afraid that there's going to be a question that comes up that we can't answer. We think that because we don't know anything about a certain religion or belief, that we can't talk about spiritual things with that person. Oh, wait, wait, I'll go study it, and I'll come back, and whenever. Do we ever get back? We might read John and think that if we just knew things like Jesus did, well, that'd be easy, right? He's Jesus. 
He knows, he knows what's going on. Then I'd have no fear in evangelizing. Well, first of all, it's okay to not know the answer. Gather the facts, right? Ask good questions and simply say, that's a great question. And I want to give you a well-thought-out answer. Can I get back to you on that? And then seek out good resources. Just because you've never heard the question or thought it deeply about it doesn't mean that there isn't one. Brilliant apologists and theologians have spent lifetimes pursuing these answers, and Christianity has great and compelling answers. And second, you can know absolutely nothing about someone's belief and still have a great spiritual conversation. The key is to ask good questions and listen well. Don't just be thinking of what you're going to say next. Let them take the driver's seat in the conversation. They will explain what they believe if you ask them, right? Listen for comparisons to Christianity, for internal inconsistencies, and then ask, you said you believe this. How does that match up with reality? Or you said that if you do this, you'll experience heaven or nothingness or whatever it is, paradise. What assurance do you have that you can attain that? We then have the opportunity to explain Christianity in comparison. This is what I believe. Are you ready to be intentional students of others? Intentional students. And let me be clear, I don't mean that we sit at their feet and we just um, apply their Buddhism or their atheism or whatever to our lives. I mean that in our conversations, we study them. Like in any relationship that matters, we want to inquire about that person because we care. It means that we have to change our attitude, though. We have to move from fear to interest. And sometimes that means we move from, hey, let me tell you what you need to know, to, hey, tell me about. Jesus becomes a resource and, ans- and answers uh, questions for this woman. He's gained her respect and her trust in a very short amount of time. And I'm often amazed at the depth at which a quick conversation can go. I've had a lot of conversations about deep and personal, deep and personal things uh, with someone I've just met. How much deeper should we be able to go in friendships and familial relationships? The Samaritan woman now calls Jesus a Jew. She calls him sir. She calls him prophet. Jesus has become a resource for this woman. And so she asks about worship, specifically where is the correct place to worship? So, starting in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where man ought to worship. And so, we may not get, hey, you're a prophet, but hopefully we get, hey, there's something different about you. Again, we're not Jesus, but if we listen well, we have, as Christians, we have insight, we have understanding to what is real, right? We have this consistent worldview and are given wisdom through biblical truth. We understand the purpose and the meaning of this life and the next. We don't have to be able to answer every question, and certainly not on the spot, but we should desire to be a personal resource for others, even if it's only the case that, wow, you actually believe this stuff, right? Or, hey, you're religious, right? How How do you know or how do you do? Hopefully, as we share our lives with others, we also have experiences of, you seem to know the Bible. What does this mean? Or, you seem to have peace even in difficult times. Why is that? Or, you're tight with God, right? Would you ask Him for this? Would you pray for me? He'll listen to you, right? Is the Samaritan woman 
just trying to divert Jesus away from her personal life with this question? Is that what's going on here? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. In our discussions, there's certainly times that we can be led astray down rabbit trails, right? People don't want to be in that conversation, and they will try and ask you questions to divert that conversation. Um, Oftentimes, we'll be talking to a friend or a neighbor who's skeptical, and you get that question, okay, Christian, what about this? And they'll ask some obscure passage or some apparent contradiction or some philosophical argument. Could God make a rock so big that He can't lift it? Aha, got you. Usually these questions are derived from some atheist website or skeptic's guide to the Bible or something they heard from someone else. And really, it just allows them to disregard Christianity. And so sometimes we need to be careful and examine the intent of the questioner. There have been times when I've really researched something. I've spent a great deal of time being careful to articulate the position, and at the end of it I get, yeah, well, what about this? And they just move to the next thing. This is usually an indication that they have no intention of interacting thoughtfully, and they may not have even been listening to you. And so sometimes you have to shame them into polite conversation, pointing out what they're doing, and say something like, that's a great question and one worth answering. In fact, I think that Christianity has a great answer for it. But can I just ask, why are you asking? What's beneath this? Is this a deal breaker, or what if there was no good answer to your question? What would be the implications of that? What would that prove to you, right? Sometimes we can get at the question that's underlying that question, but we do want to answer it, right? That's a loving thing to do. And so Jesus' reply both answers the question and continues to stay focused, going deeper into hard issues. And so are you ready to answer questions and be a resource? And we may have to change some of our priorities. When we begin interacting with others, We'll want to be prepared to answer and willing to find answer. Again, this is an act of love. We would do this with anyone. Um, There are great resources in pastors, in teachers, in leaders in this body, as well as those whose sole focus is to equip Christians and to minister in this way, to address these type of questions. Jesus says later in John's account that He is the truth and that no one comes to the Father but through Him. And so we see absolutely that Jesus reveals truth, and He reveals Himself. Um, He does this through the living water we talked about, right? He is the one who gives eternal life, right? This this idea of salvation and blessing, He's the one who gives it. Um, Verse 21 uh, says, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Uh, This idea that Jesus knows something, something's going to happen, and and it's going to change how we worship, how the Samaritan worships, how the Jew worships, okay? Remember, the Samaritans are outcasts. They're half-breeds. They're shunned by the Jews, so they create their own temple in the 5th century B.C., and it's destroyed in the 2nd century. Uh, BC, so it's already destroyed during this conversation. But it's kind of noble, right? They're, they're excluded from this worship, and so they create their own temple, and they go, and they, they want to worship God. But here's the problem. God creates, and God defines what worship is, because it matters how the temple and the tabernacle that came before it uh, were constructed and, and placed, and all these things mattered. They came with detailed instructions, 
in every way as to how they were to be constructed. They were the way in which the perfect holy God would dwell among His people who were not perfect, who were not holy. And so he's careful to describe the requirements, not only it's the temple, but the sacrifices, the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat, which is in the Holy of Holies, the priest as a representative of God's people, the way he must cleanse himself before entering through the veil. All these things are very specific because Hebrews tells us that all these requirements were a foreshadowing of Jesus and point us to his unique fulfillment through the atonement. He is the perfect sacrifice. His blood brings a better covenant. He alone f- fulfills a better priesthood. Hebrews 10 tells us that the temple veil was torn at His death, and that now we can enter the Holy of Holies, and we will be in the presence of God through this tearing of Christ's flesh and shed blood. Remember, the tabernacle was how God dwelt among His people, and earlier in John, right, chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus is, um, It says that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. It's interesting, John doesn't use the usual word for dwell here. He uses the Greek word that describes this this laying out of a tent, that Jesus tabernacled among us. And so the answer to her question is Jesus. In later uh, records, uh, Jesus answers the Pharisee, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking about his body. And in Matthew 12, when the Pharisees attacked Jesus for allowing his disciples to pick grain, he says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus is greater than the temple, and he fulfills all that is required for forgiveness of sins so that we would be justified to be in the presence of God for those that believe. But because the Samaritans are rejected, they build this new temple, and they misunderstand the connection between the one true God and His plan for salvation. Are you ready to patiently and persistently make Jesus known? So Jesus moves from Jew to Sir to Prophet, and next week we'll see to Messiah in the eyes of the Samaritan woman. Why didn't he just come out from the very beginning and just say, Jesus, nice to meet you. I'm the Messiah, right? Along this journey in this short afternoon encounter, uh, Jesus draws her into a relationship with him where the seeds of trust and understanding and ultimately belief took root and grew. So God is all about relationship. The Father, Son, and Spirit have an eternal relationship. We were created to be in relationship with God. Believers will be in relationship with God eternally. We grow through discipleship in the Christian life and relationship with others. It makes sense then that evangelism is relational as well. If we don't understand that this is a process, we may need to change our expectations. It's said that those who come to Christ hear the gospel an average of seven times. We have to be persistent. Finally, Jesus is a true worshiper. And we see in verse uh, 24 that, that talks about this idea that God is spirit and that those who worship Him, true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so when we think of worship, we often think of singing, which is absolutely true, but it's only one aspect of worship. 
Worship is what we declare worthy, what we revere. True worship is not a show, it's not a ritual or a ceremony. Real worship is a response, and it affects how we live our daily lives. When we worship together by praising God, by instructing one another, by tithing, um, by spending time in God's Word, loving others, being grateful, our thoughts and our attitudes, our actions and our words, they demonstrate that we believe that God is worthy of our worship. And so this idea that God is spirit means that God is immaterial. Um, God opens up His testimony of Christ by telling us that Jesus, the Word, eternally existed with God as God, took on human nature as well, that He tabernacled, that He dwelt among us, putting on flesh. And so, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so, the Father and Holy Spirit are and remain spirit. And so, this idea of worshiping in spirit means that it's beyond the physical, beyond the material. It's not about an external action, bowing or kneeling at the right time, lighting candles or dressing in a certain way. It's not about the instruments or the furniture or even the physical location. It's a matter of our heart. It's about loving God with all that is within us passionately. And so Jesus is the truth, and God has revealed the truth about who He is. So it's in that knowledge of truth that we worship. And so our worship is to be directed by truth, not ceremony, not tradition. So religion doesn't save. Real relationship with the true God does. In spirit and in truth. Spirit without truth can be shallow, a purely emotional experience. But what happens when the emotional high is over? Worship stops. And truth without spirit can be dry, detached, a joyless, joyless legalism. So worship in spirit and in truth is this joyous appreciation of God properly informed by Scripture. And this is the mark of a true worshiper, and Jesus does this perfectly. So are you ready to worship God in spirit and truth? And when we apply the gospel, our lives are changed. We can't contain our worship of gratitude and praise. So if you're not a believer and you're here today or you're listening know that there are people praying, and they're trying to learn and change, and it might not come out right all the time, but there are people all around you that want you to know the Creator and the Savior, the Healer, and the greatest gift that is Jesus. So, this was our goal. How will we be more focused and effective in offering people around us the single greatest gift, which is an introduction to the God who created them, who loves them, and who will give them meaning? How do we do that? by being ready. And are you ready? If you're waiting for permission, if you're waiting for an invitation, if your answer is, I don't know, am I ready? Here it is. You're ready. Go be real. Go be intentional. Be relational. Love. Ask questions. Be ready to answer questions about the joy of worshiping God and living the Christian life. And if you're not ready, think about the changes that need to be made. Ask yourself, why not? What's holding me back? If it's because you were told that evangelism is for those super-Christians, you've been lied to. It's the mission of Christ and His followers. It is the adventure of faith, and it's about a changed life. So we're going to sing a song in spirit and in truth. Uh, We're going to worship God. Um, Let me pray. God, we love You so much, and You are the greatest gift. 
God, we want others to know about you. We want to be obedient to you. Uh, we want to love others. And withholding or hiding or um, keeping that truth from others is not loving, is not... Um, God, we have to be able to get out of our uncomfortableness because there are, because it matters, because it's real. God, we love you so much, and we want to praise you and worship you together right now. Amen.